This episode of 80 Days is brought to you by HarryBaby.com, the company that makes the funniest Irish-themed t-shirts. Harry Baby shipped to 71 countries last year, and to celebrate its 10th anniversary in 2017, Harry Baby aims to deliver to all 196 countries in the world by St. Patrick's Day 2018. You can help by ordering now from HarryBaby.com and use the promo code 80DAYS, that's 80DAYS, to get 10% off. I am willing to wager 20,000. I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. You accept? I accept, I accept. Train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello everyone and welcome to 80 Days, an exploration podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet-powered balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly, I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong, and joining me today are... Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK. And Joe Byrne in Bern, Switzerland. And in this episode we'll be talking about Georgia, not the US state, but the country in the South Caucasus, known to its inhabitants as Sakart Velo. This former Soviet Republic is nestled between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea and is home to around 3.7 million people. Throughout its history, Georgia has been subject to numerous larger powers, including the Mongols, the Ottoman Empire, the dynasties of Persia, and even the Soviet Union. As the Iron Curtain fell, Georgia declared its independence and has operated as a modern republic ever since. Its neighbor to the north, Russia, however, has ensured that Georgia's hold over independence has never been as secure as most Georgians would like it to be. Ethnic conflicts and economic turmoil beset the country throughout the 1990s, culminating in the brief Russo-Georgian War of 2008, from which tensions still remain to this day. Mark, you want to bring us all the way back to the early history of Georgia? Okay, so uh, going to brass tax is that is that a tax on brass? I never I never understood that. Anyway, uh, so the etymology of Georgia, uh, Sakart Velo is what they call it in Georgia, or something that is slightly better pronounced than than how I just did it. Uh, but there's a lot of theories for why the country is called Georgia. Uh, some of the, I mean. Jupiter ones uh, come from Western Europeans, those great guys. The idea was that during the Crusades, they went through Georgia on the way to, to the Holy Land, and they saw in Georgia that they were very keen on St. George, so let's all call them Georgians. That was uh, Jacques de Vitry, uh, who was a, a cardinal and historian of the, the Crusades. Seems a bit simplistic. It is very simplistic. I mean, I guess... The standard of thinkery was not quite what it is today. But then again, you know, there's a lot of dummies around today. So give them a pass on that. So some of the Greeks thought it might come from the word for uh, farmer, which was Georgios. And they thought that they were, you know, tilling the land. So there are a bunch of farmers. So let's call it farmer land. Uh, so coming okay. from Georgios. And that was according to Pliny the Younger and uh, Jean Chardin, who was a French traveler. But my favorite, and I think it's seen to be the most contemporary theory and maybe the most likely, is that it came from uh, old forms of Persian. 
and that it was coming, it comes from Varkana, which means land of the wolves, uh, which kind of makes sense in the context of it being in the Caucasus, in the, the mountain range that it's in. Uh, and if you come on a few iterations from old Persian to, to newer forms, you go from Varkana to Gurgan to Gorgan to Georgia, basically. So it's, it's land of the wolves, if you accept that explanation. Which is pretty which is much better than farmer land. Um, and pretty much everyone calls it Georgia except the Georgians, right? Like everyone calls it Georgistan or Georgia or something to that effect, except in Kartveli where it's called Sakartvelo. Yeah. I, I haven't seen any other language call it anything that sounds like its own name, which is funny. And n- no one agrees with them, but it doesn't mean that they're wrong. They're still, they're still right to call it Sakartvelo, <laughs> but, you know, just nobody yeah. in the world agrees with them that it's called Sakartvelo. Can I just chime in here? I think this would be a good point to mention it, that the Kartveli language is really old and really unrelated to all the other languages in the region. So it's not related to to any of the Slavic languages, it's not related to any Greek or um, any Indo-European languages, and it's not really related to any Semitic languages. So this Kartveli group of languages in Georgia and bits of Armenia and the Caucasus is its own thing and has its own writing system that goes back to back about 3,000 years. So there's a reason they've got a different name for themselves than everyone else, is they've got their own their own name for everything. And the script is very, it's quite distinctive. It's quite, like, loopy. It's a lot of, like, mm. soft, like, angular kind of letters. I don't really know how many characters there are in it, but it's, it, it it's looks like, it's like a font you wouldn't really use in Word for a serious document, but that, <laughs> it, you know, the, the letters, the letters, they look kind of like versions of Latin letters, but softer and loopier and a little bit prettier. Mm. But it's very distinctive. So uh, going to the legends within which Georgia is included, the two biggies uh, are both Greek legends. Uh, the Greeks were very aware of, of Georgia. At the time, though, it wasn't, it wasn't Georgia. It was this kingdom called Colchis. Uh, and there was a few other kingdoms as well, but the main one is Colchis. Um, the two main legends that come from there are uh, Prometheus. Uh, Prometheus, he was uh, one of the gods. He stole fire from Zeus. Uh, Zeus thought that was uh, not great. And Prometheus wanted to give it to to humankind because he was a sound lad. Thanks, Prometheus. And Zeus, for his troubles, strapped him to a rock and got an eagle to eat his liver out for all eternity. Uh, Because he was immortal, his liver would grow back and the eagle would come down day after day and use his pecky beak to scratch out his liver. Until Mm -hmm. Heracles, a.k.a. Hercules, uh, turned up and squashed the eagle and Prometheus got out and had a nice uh, vulture, you know, eagle sandwich for lunch. And this all happened apparently in Georgia. This is the, the scene for it. Uh, the other larger Ooh. legend is uh, Jason and the Argonauts. Argo uh, being the boat and Argus being the guy who made the boat. It was this big, you know, sweeping legend. Apparently Heracles was also on the boat. He was one of the, he was one of the Argonauts, I read. Jason was told he had to get the golden fleece, which came from a golden winged ram. Uh, actually, to be honest, reading the Wikipedia page for this legend, uh, just to get like a, a brief idea of it, is very like wiki, reading a, a Wikipedia summary for like a Marvel comic book series. It's just <laughs> like, it's very much nonsense out of context. It's like, and then he went here because there was a sheep that was gold. So he needed this because his father and the, oh God, oh Lord, it's nonsense. It's all bullshit. Uh, I, I came across um, a documentary where they're talking about traditional crafts up in the, high up in the mountains, like at some of these villages at, 2,000 mm. meters in the, into the mountains. And 
they have this idea that maybe the golden fleece comes from the traditional way they collect gold in the rivers up there, where they use a sheep's fleece to yes. filter the river water. And this kind of morphed into this idea of the golden fleece. Well, there's a separate theory, Joe. Um, oh, okay. the, the Greeks thought that the golden fleece came from when uh, Poseidon, the god of the seas, turned into a sheep and started banging a bunch of sheep. Uh, I, 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 when, that seems more when reasonable. You, when you imagine, like, yeah, when you imagine turning into something else, an, an animal or something like that, you, you don't necessarily think, and I and I'm going to find the female versions of that animal pretty attractive. So I might just uh, might just get into it. Um, so that's what Poseidon did, and that's what created the Golden Fleece. And Jason went and he met with a local sorceress who's the princess of what is now Georgia. And then she went back with him to Greece and they cooked up all kinds of devilment, making people see visions and all kinds of nonsense. But yeah, so Colchis was, a, I guess, something that the Greeks were very aware of as a culture. Um, mm. Going a little bit further back in, in terms of archaeology, quite amazingly, the, the first um, Homo erectus remains outside of Africa were found in... Georgia, in uh, Tbilisi. I'll correct you there, Mark. Uh, okay, go on, Joe. T- Tbilisi. So T- we, we're all, T- I've, been, I've learned from my Georgian friend that we're all pronouncing Tbilisi wrong, and it's Tbilisi. So let's try Well, and my Georgian ones. friend says you're a dick, Joe. How about that? <laughs> um, there is I, an extra I in there, which we've now realised that everybody we just, just ignores. ignores. Yeah, it's it just seems T-B-I-L-I-S-I, and we just say, anyway. So Tbilisi. All right, no worries. I, I don't actually have a Georgian friend. It's because I call my friends dicks. So please, please still be my friend, Joe. Uh, I will. Um, okay. So anyway, yes, uh, the oldest human remains, basically Homo erectus remains outside of Africa were found there 1.75 million years old. Go, there's ancient cultures. There, the Shulaveri Shomu culture. I have in my notes, it just says Shomu the money, which I don't think makes any sense. But I think in my head was related to to the gold mining and uh, the collecting of the gold that you talked about, Joe. Uh, to this day, as far as I know, I think there is actually still gold mining operations happening in Georgia. So, mm-hmm. you know, there, there has always been a, a source of wealth from that in some some areas of the hills. Uh, the Shomu culture used some uh, obsidian for tools, but the, a big thing about them was domesticated grapes from 6000 BC. This is related to the Georgian love of wine. 8,000-year-old yes. wine jars they found with a wine residue inside, and it showed that they were actually using antibacterial preservatives, adding that to the wine to mm. preserve it, uh, which is pretty advanced, uh, you would think, for 8,000 years ago. And wine to this and, day, as far as I know, is a big cultural significant thing, Joe? I, I think the word wine is, is purported to come from this, this Carvelian word, vino, uh, because they probably invented the drink. Huh? And it just went into every other language as a, as a loan word. So that's kind of cool. They were huge worshippers of Dionysus, who was the Greek goddess of wine. And a lot of their kind of uh, artifacts that were found there, bronze, gold, etc., are all basically paying tribute to either her or Pan, who is kind of the god of getting effed up and doing some mad stuff. Uh, so they found like satyr heads and bronze. Uh, and also people of the time were being buried in the wine jars, which I don't know if that shows the significance of the wine jar or they just got really drunk and couldn't, you know, have the coordination to build coffins. Uh, but uh, that was something that was happening at the time as well. Hmm. Um Going a little bit further, I already mentioned Colchis as an ancient kingdom. Uh, there was also a second major kingdom there called Iberia, 
Um, do not confuse this Iberia with the Iberia that is the uh, Spanish Iberia, the Iberian Peninsula. Uh, this is a totally different Iberia, but apparently both came from the same root of having wolves in them. So it's it's related to that. Oh, that kind of backs up the George Gerg thing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I don't know if it works so well for Spain, but I guess maybe they had, they had wolves as well. Um, both of these kingdoms were slowly forged out of uh, kind of just settlements of ethnically similar tribes. Towards 0 AD, you start to see the Romans turning up. Uh, Pompey, who is a hugely significant figure in, in Roman history, he was on a massive quest in, I guess, what was termed Asia Minor at the time. He he went to Georgia. He just conquered Turkey, what what was what will now be Turkey, and he was trying to increase the, the he was pushing the border back uh, of Rome. There was this hapless king called Artag who was there. Uh, things don't work out well for poor Artag. He he tried to be diplomatic with Pompey. Pompey was a, a murder machine, by the way. He was one of the richest men, one of the most successful generals in in Roman history. Uh, Pompey decided that uh, Artag was raising an army. Uh, bad news for Artag. Artag fled his fortress across the river and literally burned the bridge behind him trying to block Pompey. Pompey captured everything and then he got Artag to promise to rebuild the bridge, which he did. And then Pompey came over and tried to capture Artag again. So Artag fled to the forest, climbed up a tree with all his guys and they were just shooting arrows down Ugh. at Pompey. So Pompey burned down the forest. Uh, <laughs> nice. Pom- Pompey always gets his man. Uh, eventually he There's took all of Artag's involved. kids hostage. Oh yeah. yeah. And then he took uh, Artag's kids hostage and uh, that was basically it for poor old Artag. And from here on, Georgia was basically an extension of Rome uh, up until the kind of AD 500, 600s thereabouts. I also have that uh, there was a rebellion in Georgia in the time of Nero where they burnt the Roman fleet that was in, uh, in I guess, the Caspian. And the Romans... Or the Black Sea, probably. Uh, yeah, actually, yeah, way more likely because uh, the Mediterranean uh, would, would, would have the route in through the Bosphorus. Mm. Um, then I, I'm, I'm going to wrap this up real quick because the early history, there's just so much of it. This is probably the deepest history we've done. I think that this is the country with the longest history we've, we've tackled. So I think we're doing okay to get up to, you know, the ADs in, in a few minutes. <laughs> There's a lot of further reading on this one. Just, just we're trying to beast through this, this like large chunks because there's mm. just so much bloody detail, and they're up against so many major empires. Not just, not just now, but like all the way back, all the way back. Uh, it's, it's just so dense because they relate to so many other countries and so many. Everyone's passed through on their way north, south, east, or west. Yeah. Um, okay, so real quick, the Georgians convert to Christianity via Saint Nino who uh, turns up and starts saying this Jesus lad, he's the stuff. And the queen, she she thinks, yeah, fair enough, and converts. The king, not so keen. Uh, he goes out on a hunting trip and is blinded, prays to this god of St. Nino, and is cured. And thus, everybody in Georgia is now Christian. Good job, St. So Nino. So it was the second um, Christian country in the world uh, after Armenia. Yeah, after, after Armenia. So... Then I've already talked about how they start rubbing up against all of these massive, uh, not like a you know creepo on the bus, but you know they're just they're kind of stuck there, so they're being rubbed up upon, I guess, by uh, by uh, major empires. The Byzantines and the Persians fought. I started reading through it, just these endless wars with kind of quite funny names. So there was the Iberian War between five two seven and five three one, and then there was uh, this huge treaty called the Perpetual Peace. 
the perpetual peace lasted for eight eight years, uh, and we're done. Uh, then we get the Lasik War. That is that is definitely not perpetual. That is an optimistically named treaty. Yeah, the Lasik War for for twenty one years they fought the Lasik War, uh, and then there was the fifty years peace. Which lasted for ten years, uh, oh. and and it just keeps it keeps it keeps going. It keeps going like this. Um, yeah, it's it's just, just bloody just endless. Just don't put a finite amount of time on your on your piece, guys. Just well, they, just, they went down for know, perpetual kind of say, fifty years. I mean, that, that's that's a an admission yeah. of reality. <laughs> um, and then Not quite enough apparently. After after this period, and a little bit because of these wars, where the Persians and the Byzantines were just slugging the crap out of each other, uh, they weakened each other. And they allowed what was, you know, well, a, a hugely significant geopolitical event, the, the foundation of, of Islam. Mm. Islam became introduced to Georgia around 645. The period is known in Georgian history as Araboba, um, apparently. Uh, I mean, I, <laughs> that's what I read. I apologize. If the, the Arab when the Arabs came. Yeah, I, I apologize if that's something really, really awful in some context. I'm, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it wasn't you know, created with uh, sensitivity and, uh, you know, forward-looking uh, opinions. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, so this was only 13 years after the death of Muhammad. So this is really, really early on in, wow. in Islam. But around this time, uh, Iberia recognized the, and this, this is a word I love, suzerainty, uh, sort mm-hmm. of the overriding authority of the local caliphate. Uh, so there's Byzantium, there's the caliphate, which is the new religion of Islam. And there's these guys called the Khazars who are just like murder maniacs to the north. And they were all in a big tug of war over Georgia. Uh, there was this uh, uh, caliphate guy. I don't know. I don't know the word. Uh, he was one one of those, one of those caliphate guys called Marwan, uh, who uh, I think a caliph. Maybe is that not the caliph is uh, like maybe the, he was a caliph. The, yeah. Yeah, maybe he's a caliph. I don't know. He I don't even know that. Maybe he's some he's a caliph you guy. He's jump, a caliph. Check. He Ah uh, no, it's fine. He was Marwan. He's Marwan. Uh he's a good guy. I love him. He's terrific. Got the best guys, Marwan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we have we have Marwan. And uh he, he basically there was this problem where these Khazars kept coming through Georgia and attacking what would become Iran, Persia. And they got, the Khazars came down and they got down as far as Mosul, which is now uh, modern, day, modern, modern day Iraq slash Iraq. Islamic State at this point. Um, yep. Yep. But uh, anyway, to, to, to block off these Khazars, the, the Marwan, this caliph guy, uh, he entered in and basically took the place over and founded an uh, emir, so an, an emirate in Tbilisi. Uh, uh, nice. Um, nice. Yeah, cheers. To rule over, over Iberia uh, while he just continued to attack the Khazars. And just this weird detail I found. This invasion where he fought the Khazars and its horrors left a strong mark in the Georgian collective memory who nicknamed the Arab general Marwan the Deaf. I assume because he was deaf to the screams and crying of the yeah. civilians he was he was slaughtering. Um, basically, after that, just the emir just weakens over time. It's less important. And uh, you go into the, the 1000s AD. Uh, and that's that's mm-hmm. pretty much it. Uh, I will say though that uh, Islam is still relatively popular in Georgia today. Uh, more than ten percent of the population are, are particularly are in the south. Yes, yes, yep. bordering towards uh, uh, Iran because like the, the, Tbilisi was an, em- an emirate for like the 
at least another 500 years. So there was a stronghold yep. of Islam for quite a long time. It, it, I'd really recommend Tom Holland's book on the rise of Islam. He kind of gets into that whole Persia and, and Rome beating each other to pieces. And then the Black Death came and everyone was so tired that when this new force just mm. comes out into the desert, they fell over. And it really spread so quickly and so far. It's, it's incredible. Um, okay, so we're skipping on a bit. But uh, around the turn of the millennium, Georgia starts to become a, a single thing as opposed to a collection of, of principalities and duchies and and, print and kingdoms. So um, it was a bit complicated. The, the, the Byzantines had the majority of influence at this point in the region. And uh, they were particularly a particular influence over the regions of Tau and Klarjeti. I think, no, I think they're now part of Turkey, but they're kind of the southwest of the Georgian sphere of influence. And in particular, Prince David of Tau was uh, an important character in the region. Now, he, he adopted as his son, his distant cousin Bagrat, who was uh, the heir to the kingdom of Abkhazia. And we'll, we'll come back to Abkhazia. <laughs> I know. Sure, surely mess. the name of a, a man born to rule, Bagrat. <coughs> Bagrat. <laughs> So and yes, like you, like you're mentioning, Joe Abkhazia is that's definitely not the last time it'll be mentioned. No, put it that way. But at this point, Abkhazia was considered kind of central to um, to Georgianness, which it isn't anymore. Uh, Abkhazia was ruled by King Theodosius the Blind, who everyone hated. Was he actually blind? Uh, he was definitely uh, spiritually blind. I don't know if he was physically blind. He wasn't well thought of and was very weak. <laughs> so when he when he died, right. Bagrat becomes king of Abkhazia. Um, David having adopted King Bagrat. Bagrat. Yep. All hail King Bagrat. <laughs> Leave Bagrat I voted for alone. Prince Turdbag. <laughs> um, so David had adopted him as a son, so he helped Bagrat to kind of ensure his dominance over Abkhazia. Bagrat's actual father, Gurgan, was king Ooh, of salacious. Kartli. Uh, and he. That's a, an eastern province equivalent with um, Iberia. And between the three of them, they start struggling to throw off the yoke of foreign oppression. And eventually, when everyone dies, Bagrat ends up holding everything. And he becomes... It's all in a bag. Yep. <laughs> he becomes <laughs> King Bagrat III, the king of kings of the Georgians. And this is kind of the first time Georgia's united as one kingdom. And this is kind of the, the, the start of the Bagrationi dynasty. So he wasn't the first Bagrat. Obviously, he's Bagrat the third. But um, after him, the Bagrationi dynasty start ruling a bigger See, chunk feel, of land. I feel bad having made a joke about his name now because now you have to say it like twenty five times. Quite a lot. <laughs> I, I, I would have, I would have just made fun of another ridiculous name if that was the case. Sorry about that. Well, every, all the other kings are called George, so it's it's. Uh, oh, that's appropriate. So you know, around a thousand and eight to four, uh, he starts consolidating this this almost empire. He, he becomes the top dog in the region. Um, he doesn't quite get the hold of, of Tbilisi, uh, which is still an emirate. And he also imprisoned his cousins. Get it right, who, Joe. <laughs> he also imprisoned his cousins who were potential rivals to the throne and they all died in captivity to make sure his son George could succeed in 1014. But despite all of the, the, the murdering he had to go through in order to... Um, to wrest these lands out of the hands of the Byzantine emperor and and the various Arab occupiers. 
He was canonised uh, just last December, December 2016, by the Georgian Orthodox Church. So he's now, right. uh, I suppose, Saint Saint Bagrat. Um, I, I so thought that, you were going to say, cool. despite all the murdering, despite all the murdering, he never lost his cheery disposition and his positive outlook <laughs> on life. <laughs> and, and that. Anyway. So yeah. Bagrat kind of founds this, with the help of his various fathers, this um, unified kingdom of Abkhazia, Tau, Klajeti, Kartli, <laughs> and I think Kacheti. So basically, Kartli and Kacheti are the east. Abkhazia is up in the northwest on the Black Sea. And Tau, Kar... Uh, Kar- hang on. <laughs> I always struggle with this one. And Tau and Klajeti are... You can just call the whole place Georgia at some point, Joe. It's so now we <laughs> we'll have we'll a Georgia. You. The kingdom of Georgia. Okay. Has been made. But all was not well in the Caucasus. Uh, from the 1040s onwards, the Seljuk Turks completely redraw the map of the Middle East. Uh, they conquer um, Armenia, move. Azerbaijan, and most importantly, a lot of the Byzantine Empire, um, particularly Asia Minor and Anatolia, fall under their control. And that becomes the, the Sultanate of Rome, which will eventually become the Ottoman Empire. So a lot of South Georgia falls to this a Seljuk Turk invasion. Then the mountainous regions of Abkhazia and Svaneti kind of become increasingly important as Georgians flee north into the mountains for safety. In the 1080s, so not that long afterwards, we start to get a fight Oh my back God. <laughs> oh God. I thought, I, thought, I thought we were like 200 years in at least. Oh my nope. God. Oh. Uh, Strap yourself in, folks. <laughs> don't worry, it gets quicker once uh. the Mongols turn up. Uh, <laughs> Ah, the Mongols accelerate everything. They do. They're slash and burn politics. In the 1080s, 16-year-old yeah. King David IV comes to the throne, taking over from his rubbish father, who wasn't a very good king at all. King David the Publis. Uh, well, I'll tell you, he gets a much better name than that. Uh, but he organised an army and a peasant militia, and as he started driving back the Turks and rebuilding cities that had been destroyed by the Turks, so he started kind of bolstering the region, um, and as the First Crusade got underway in Anatolia and Western Christians were fighting the Turks there, he took the opportunity of a weakened Turkish presence to start pushing back his borders and driving the Turks out and stop paying tribute to them. So he had been a vassal. He was now asserting his independence. Um, Do they call him King David the Turk Killer? No. So they call him King David the Builder. Because he ah, rebuilt oh, the kingdom. Politically yeah. Appropriate. yeah, it's a good name. The, the Order of David yeah. the Builder is one of the highest honours you can be given in Georgia. All right. He, he took control of a lot of Armenia from, from um, Muslim control, and a lot of the tribes of the Caucasus came into his sphere of influence. Uh, it really made the Georgian crown this regional power to be reckoned with, one of the most p- prominent Christian states in the region. Um, and he was a big promoter of Christian culture. He has also been canonised. He claimed that he was descended from King David, like the biblical Jewish King David, which is... Um, Symbolics he made up. There has been a long connection between the Holy Land and Georgia with people going back and forth between them. So who knows? But almost certainly not true. Um, there was a Total big fight back by the Sultan of Baghdad who wanted to put these Christians back in their place. And he took an army of about 200,000 to put down... David's army of 56,000 at Diggory, and somehow the Georgians won. So this emboldened them, and they, in 1122, were able to take back Tbilisi into Christian hands for the first time in quite a while. 
What what um, did the did uh, what did the Sultan of Rat Baghdad have to say about that? <laughs> of Bagrat Dad. An interesting detail is that they, they, in order to conquer Tbilisi, they used the help of German and Scandinavian mercenaries, which they called Franks, but also some kind of proto-Russians, the Kipchaks from up in the Caucasus, and also a tribe called the Allens, which I really, I like the idea of a whole tribe of Allens. Um, a tribe of Allens and a tribe of Franks. Yeah, I just wanted you to remember your favourite Allen, your favourite Frank, and imagine them multiplied. Yeah. Alan Alda, Alan Rickman, uh, Lily Allen. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, I'm starting to run out. Alan Thick. He was uh, Robin Thick's dad. Uh, <laughs> so after David the Builder built up this kingdom, it did okay for about uh, about a hundred years, um, which is nice. This was considered the golden age of Georgia. So um, they had independence and regional regional importance for, for this kind of century and a half. And then uh, the first ruling queen of Georgia, Tamar the Great, comes to power in 1184. And she brought the empire to its highest extent, where it stretched from the Black Sea to the Caspian. It had vassal states of Armenia, Azerbaijan, the Trebizond Empire along the Black Sea. Um, she also subjugated the Shervan Emirate, uh, took territory from the Byzantine Emperor because the Crusade had actually briefly destroyed Constantinople and the Byzantine Empire. So the Crusading Christians from Western Europe, for some reason, destroyed modern day Istanbul on their way to the Holy Land and never quite made it to killing the Muslims. Just, just practice. Went home with, just practice. They went home practice. with all the gold. Um, so that's 1205. But she um, built up this remarkable empire. She was known as Queen of the Abkhazians, Kartvels, Rans, Kaks and Armenians, Shirvan Shakin and Shakin Shakin, the sovereign of the East and the West. So that's a, it's a lofty title. Uh, seems a bit like, uh, I don't know if you guys watch Game of Thrones, but uh, in the later series when <laughs> Khaleesi turns up in a new town, she says her name and it lasts like a minute. And like this yep. guy from the Andals, and I also went here, and oh good, and I just the first freer of slaves and, and uh, conqueror of breaker of chains yeah. and mother of dragons and like okay we yeah. get it exactly, you're a big yeah. deal you're a big yeah. deal. She built this remarkable fortress cave city in Varzia in the Ereshali mountain, which looks like something out of the Lord of the Rings, and we'll put a link in the show notes that you, of the video wandering around these caves, but they basically hewn a city, a 13-storey city, out of the side of a mountain, including churches wow. with bell towers, fortresses, houses, everything. Um, wow. And it was not out by an earthquake a, a couple of centuries later, but now a few monks still live there, just keeping an eye on the place as a monastery. And from here... <laughs> yep, she, it's still a mountain. It's <laughs> nods. <laughs> And um, in 1206, from this, this fortress of Varsi, she rallied this army to take on the Seljuk Turk, Sultan of Rome, the biggest player in the region. And they completely expanded the territory in that direction. So she wiped the slate with um, with Georgian influence. And this was the, the height of it, basically the entire Caucasus region. The entire gap between those two, the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, is now a Georgian, essentially, empire. And... This is the height of Georgian power. 
and she is revered to this day as this legendary figure, particularly romanticised during the 1800s when Georgian nationalism became a, a movement. She was this kind of person you put on your banner as a, as a hero to follow. All right, I think that's an appropriate place to take a break. And we'll be back just after this. an example of uh, Georgian polyphonic music and that particular track was included on the Voyager one it was one of the Voyager golden records that was sent into space on 20th of August 1977 mm-hmm. along with 27 other pieces of music that is still making its way to the edge of the galaxy I guess today so some aliens may someday hear Chak sung for them in polyphonic style just as as the listeners have I've heard. Yeah, and apparently this so. is the oldest polyphonic music in the world, Georgian. So that's kind of right. cool. Um, it's now standard in Western music, but it wasn't until very recently. So before that lovely song, Georgia was doing quite well. But uh, that's kind of it for region-spanning um, hegemony, unfortunately. In the 1200s, we have these crippling invasions by first the Persians, who were looking for conscripts to fight the Mongols. And then the Mongols themselves um, put an end to the Golden Age. So while Genghis Khan was conquering the entire known earth because he just was really good at that, uh, Shah Muhammad of Khwarizm, my Persian nice. pronunciation is pretty Sh- bad. Shah Muhammad of Khwarizm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Love that guy. Uh, he, for some reason, decided to provoke Genghis Khan. And it didn't oh, end God. well. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so he, that does he, not usually end well. Yeah, but we know that now. Anything. We didn't know it then. Yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, so he sent two of his best generals to just ruin in Persia, basically, uh, demolishing his empire, raiding as they went. So they, they first came into Georgia while they were chasing the, the, the Shah to some island in the Caspian Sea he decided to hide in. And just while they were in the neighbourhood, they did a bit of, you know, casual raiding of Georgian cities. Um, right. And Georgian-controlled Armenia, they just ru- ruined it. Um, they defeated tens of thousands of Georgian soldiers. And then they just left. They weren't really looking to conquer it. They were just kind of bored. So they killed yeah. thousands of people and then left. Well, if anybody can. It's the Mongols. You know, Genghis Khan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, God. So initially, Queen Rasudan, who, who became queen of this region, was really confused about who these invaders were. She wrote to the Pope uh, looking for help, and she kind of went, we assumed they were Christians because they were killing all the Muslims. It turns out they were just pagans <laughs> killing Muslims, and they're also going to kill us too. Uh, <laughs> we, we called that oh, one bless. wrong. Uh, yeah. Then 
after raiding Georgia and Armenia on a later raid, uh, Subutai and Jebe, two, two Mongol uh, top men, top generals, they went through the mountains and conquered the Kievan Rus, which is kind of modern day Ukraine and Russia, the kind of Ukraine, yeah. the, the kernel of the modern Russian culture was this um, Kievan Rus and constantly were just attacking Georgia. Uh, they conquered the Sultanate of Rum, which is in Anatolia and Turkey. They conquered Cilicia, which is around Armenia. They got, took Mosul and Georgia, all submitted to this Ilkhanate, which is the name of this chunk of Mongol Empire. So yeah, the, this, this is a, a complicated period and the History of the Mongols podcast by Ben Hill has been very helpful in getting my head around all these various cans. But needless to say, Georgia's kind of done for a while. The Mongols will do that. At the start of the 1300s, George the Brilliant um, earned his name by bringing about a brief reunion. He kind of initially was loyal to the Khans and then his friend, a prince, was executed. So he kind of decided to stop paying tribute, drive out the Mongols um, and sort of bring back some of the traditional lands under his control. And how did that go? It went It went okay. Uh he developed good relationships with Western powers like Genoa and Venice. He made agreements with Egypt that allowed his pilgrims to go to the Holy Land. Um, he probably is the origin of the modern flag, the Jerusalem Cross, from this kind of interaction with the Holy Land. But uh, yeah, he, he, he left Georgia in a pretty good state, but it was all for nothing. Because despite this kind of brief glimmer of remembrance of the Golden Age, one of the great empire builders, like the, a second Genghis Khan, you, you could say, um, was just going to sweep through the region and completely redraw the map again. So this is a guy called Tamerlane, who you may have heard of. A little bit. I think mainly through Age of Empires, but go on. <laughs> he was essentially a sort of a Turco-Mongol chieftain based out of modern day Uzbekistan and he just he just you know, flattened the place um, he invaded Georgia eight different times and we end up in like two three hundred years of a Turkic Persia subsuming Georgia and then the Ottomans taking bits of the west and between the Ottoman Empire and the Persian Empire there's just this constant internal feuding between various little principalities and kingdoms we're back to everything we're back to the way everything was before Bagrat unified the kingdom. Have you no respect for Bagrat? Six, All the good work he did. years of good work undone. Um, so, George is looking for new allies because uh, they don't have any. And in, because of their Orthodox Christianity and the growing power of the Mosca, Muscovy kingdom of what's becoming Russia, they see an ally north of the Caucasus Mountains. And they reach out to Russia for help. It's been, there's a few abortive attempts to get help, but uh, really it was under King Heracles II, or Hercules II, depending what you want to call him, in 1744, that we really start to move Georgia from this Persian influence to a Russian influence. So the, the shift of um, suzerainty, if you will, moves from south to north. I, I, oh, I will, Joe. You, you know I will. All so, day, all night. Every time. Um. <laughs> Have I distracted you, Joe? Yeah. So how, Joe, did Russia t come to sort of be a, a heavier influence than in Georgia? Um, well, after the 
Persian Shah was assassinated, Eriklee decided to stop being loyal to Persia, basically. There was a, an instability. He'd been looking for Russian help to kind of get out from underneath the Persian yoke, and this was his opportunity. So um, he declared this kind of independence. He stopped paying tribute. He had alliances with Azerbaijan. He was a modernizer. He looked to Europe for kind of influence of how to run a country. Eventually, he did have to submit to the new Persian dynasty in 1762 and was named Wali of Gorgistan, which is basically, it's Georgia, you know. It's basically Eastern Georgia, actually. Um, So Western Georgia is still separate. And they signed a treaty in 1783, the Treaty of Georgievsk, which nominally placed Georgia under the control of Imperial Russia. But when the Persians came to punish them, and uh, completely destroyed Tbilisi, Tbilisi killing 20,000 oh, people. Nah. Uh, not perfect. They killed 20,000 people. The Russians didn't help. Mm. So um, basically, the Persian emperor sent this ultimatum to Georgia. Your Highness knows that for the past 100 generations, you've been subject to Iran. Now we deign to say with amazement that you've attached yourself to the Russians, who have no other business than to trade with Iran. Last year, you forced me to destroy a number of Georgians, although we had no desire at all for our subjects to perish by our own hand. It is now our great will that you, an intelligent man, abandon such things, break relations with Russians. If you do not carry out this order, then we shall shortly carry out a campaign against Georgia. We will shed both Georgian and Russian blood, and out of it we will create rivers as big as the Kura. And that's what they did. Is the Kura by any chance a very small river? No, it's a large river. <laughs> it's a very large river. Eric's son was sick and ineffective. And so when he died, Tsar Paul I didn't recognise an heir. While negotiations for un- were underway to kind of f- figure out who the heir would be, the Russians just marched into Tbilisi and annexed eastern Georgia um, and deposed the Bagrationi dynasty that have, have served Georgia so well for the last nearly thousand years. Um, and pretty much overnight, Georgia ceases to be a country and becomes just this part of Russia. Less than a decade later, Western Georgia also reached out to Russia for help, and uh, they didn't learn from the mistakes of Eastern Georgia, and Russia said, yeah, sure, we'll help, and then just conquered it and annexed it. So Georgia was finally reunited, but um, at the cost of its independence. So in 1841, there's a rebellion in Guria where uh, peasants and nobles revolt against Russia. They just join forces to uh, overthrow their Russian overlords. The rebellion lasted for just around one summer, just a few months. uh, But the peasants and nobles were defeated collectively uh, and nothing really ever changed. (laughs) (laughs) So it kind of worked. Georgia was defeated. Nothing changed. It's like, well, that was I a lot like of trouble trying to implement that, at, that new tax, points. so let's not do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So 
industry at the time was carried out by Armenians uh, within the urban centers in Georgia, uh, which ended up causing resentment from nobles and Im- impoverished ex-serfs. Yeah, so Russia abolished serfs at some point. Um, yeah. So that, 1860, they abolished serfdom. So that kind of changes yeah. the I'm whole just gonna economy say- of... If, if there's a Russian version of Harry Baby, they should have a t-shirt saying Surf's Up. I'm just going to put that in there. <laughs> you, you remember uh, when we did Alaska, we basically found that they had to sell Alaska to America to pay for freeing the surfs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. That's, that's, this, that's this period. Surfs are really expensive when you have to, like, give them freedom. Mm. Feed them. Yeah. In 1905, Goria flared up again. Um, with Like, across Russia, there was hatred of the Tsars growing and across the Russian Empire hatred of the Tsars was growing so the, the peasants in Goria just boycotted the prince refused to deal with the Tsarist government and they created a, a social democratic republic or a peasants republic and this was kind of part of a, gro- a broader revolution that was happening in Russia in 1905 um, you have women demanding equality with men and it took three attempts Not over women. more than a year no. to crush this republic of Goria so you know um Socialism and, and Marxism is kind of becoming popular in Georgia. And it's in this context that uh, Yoseb Yogashvili is born in Gori near Tbilisi. Who would come to be known by a much, uh, a much different name, correct? Yes. Uncle Joe. In the, 19, but, uh, in the 1910s, he started writing under the pen name Stalin, the Man of Steel. So Joseph Stalin, one of the most significant figures in the Soviet Union, was a was a Georgian kid. He attended the Russian Orthodox Seminary in Tbilisi because the churches, the Russian and Georgian churches, have been merged, which upset a lot of Georgians. Um, and he decided in the seminary that he didn't really believe in God uh, and became an atheist. And um, he, he is and one soon dude after, who really did not believe in God. Oh boy! His teachers must have he, been he quite disappointed. Like he talked it. Yes, <laughs> he practiced what he preached in terms of his atheism. Um, he was briefly a Georgian cultural nationalist. He used to write anonymous poetry in Kartvelian. But then he became aware of Lenin, thought Lenin was awesome. Joined his party in 1903 and was eventually the leader of Georgian Bolshevism. And uh, the rest is history. I, I was reading on his Wikipedia page that uh, his, uh, his uh, grandchildren moved to, to Ireland and then named their, all their kids after him. Uh, do you know anything about that, Joe? Joe, do you know anything about that? About Stalin's grandkids. Yeah, that they were all called Joe, no. and they all they're all in Ireland, uh, <laughs> all living in Kildare and studied chemistry. Does that sound familiar, I'm, Joe? Is I'm. That, I don't I'm know. Not, can't think of anybody. I'm not Stalin's descendant. That <laughs> how do you how do you feel about how do you feel about gulags, Joe? Are you? Keen? I can't grow a good mustache. If it's, if so. it's not entirely negative. That's uh, true. You're um, more of a, a chin and uh, mutton chops guy. Exactly. So after the, the Russian October Revolution, when the Bolsheviks come to power, um, Georgia was kind of run by the other communists, the Mensheviks. So they briefly became independent. They declared their independence from Russia. There was the Democratic Republic of Georgia lasting from 1917 to 1921. A lot of um, artists and liberals fled Russia and went to Tbilisi. And there was this kind of brief avant-garde kind of art scene. Um, Best of luck. Yeah, it didn't work out great. They, they they got resistance from the Germans and the Ottomans and the British to kind of resist Bolshevism. 
but there were peasant uprisings encouraged by the Bolsheviks, particularly. Do you want to guess which regions the Bolsheviks encouraged uprisings in? How about... Uh, I mean, imagine all of them. South Ossetia, oh, maybe. Ossetia and Abkhazia? Yep. And Abkhazia. Yeah, sure. it was South Ossetia and Abkhazia. How did you guess? That definitely isn't going to become a thing. And the, the putting down of the South Ossetian revolution in particular is a sore point for South Ossetians. And yeah, the, there was a bit of a messing around with Armenia and Azerbaijan, but it didn't really matter because the Red Army rolled through the place in February 1921. And I think it took a, maybe a month or two to just completely conquer the country. And Georgia becomes a part of the Soviet Union. All right. So uh, Georgia is taken into the uh, loving embrace of the Soviet Union. Uh, Mother Russia. Yeah. Mother, exactly. Coddled in the arms of Mother Russia. Uh, how did that work out for them, Mark? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, as, 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 as Joe was saying, the Azerbaijanis and the Armenians, who are both uh, bordering Georgia, they, they had a bit of a war around the stage, which wasn't great. And it was in part Stalin who was pushing for the actual, the, the Red Army to really crush Georgia. Which is unexpected, given he was Georgia. Yeah, given that he was Georgian, I mean, it, it's almost like he he knew them well enough to know that they were going to need proper squashing. Them. He he really they yeah. they did not get any soft treatment from Stalin. Totally no. the opposite, in fact. I guess um, I guess if anything, he he wanted to demonstrate that he he did not have any loyalty to to this independent republic. He had loyalty to I guess the worker or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, so, so his, his legacy in Georgia is kind of mixed as a result. Some people hate him as the crusher of the republic and some people love him as the, like, mm. Georgian boy who ruled the world. So uh, in 1921, uh, 25th of February, Lenin received the congratulations of his commissars and I quote, the red banner blows over Tbilisi. Long live Soviet Georgia. Uh, this was awkward for the Georgian government who uh, who legged it then to several cities. They were basically just in constant retreat, total one-way traffic with the Red Army chasing them. Eventually, they went to Kutaisi, then Batumi, and eventually they had to get out of the country entirely and went to Turkey. Turkey, for their part, uh, negotiated a land grab, taking a big chunk of Georgian territory. And then Yoink. there was established a government in exile in France, uh, which would go on for, for decades. They would be constantly very poor, uh, not super well organized with other Georgian elements and would fail within a couple and of decades. Not really a government. Yeah. yeah, not really a government at all, to be honest. So here's here's this thing I was reading about, and it's it's a little bit about Georgia, it's a little bit about Russia, but it's called the Georgian Affair, so it is super relevant to, mm. to Georgia. And I just kept thinking about it as it's it's a real butterfly effect moment. As I as I started reading down through it, I started to read all these other things which I did know about, but I just didn't know that this was the progenitor of it. This is what, what what caused all this to happen. So Georgia was under the Russian thumb now. It's, you know, it's part of mm-hmm. the, the, the Soviet state. Um, and according to hard-ass insider Joseph Stalin, you're going to need a lot of thumb to really squash these Georgians. Uh, so he decided there was going to be no Georgian Red Army. They would just be a part of the Russian Red Army. Uh, there were the local Soviet groups. They would just be formed underneath the Russian Soviet groups. So th- there would be no Georgia per se. Um, he then went down to Georgia himself with a guy by the name of uh, Ordzonik. The devil went down to Georgia. Yeah, Stalin went down I to think Georgia. Think of making that. <laughs> yes, Stalin went down to Georgia. 
And they literally slapped around some of the local leaders. And I think in public, it was this big thing. They just literally started beating them up uh, for being worms, weakling worms. And it was a total fiasco. They tried to... They, they were some of the guys who were trying to force Georgia and Armenia and Azerbaijan into one Caucasus lump super team state. Mm-hmm. Um, in Stalin's words, he wanted to crush the hydra of nationalism by basically abolishing Georgia, the idea of Georgia. Right. Um, he also called, he called the locals national deviationists. So despite mm-hmm. being from Georgia, he regarded himself, I guess, as, you know, He's, he is Soviet. As, as so above all that. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Eventually, after a year or so of this, Lenin tried to get Trotsky to take over uh, working with Georgia and he broke off relations with Ever Stalin. Ever-reliable Trotsky. Prepare, well, Trots, Trotsky did seem to be a bit of a, he was kind of an administrator, I think. He was a theorist and an mm. academic and an administrator versus Stalin, who is a murdering maniac. So uh, Lenin prepared this note trying to get rid of Stalin, who was in a, a position of huge authority within the party. So his note about Stalin included the following lines. Comrade Stalin, having become secretary general, has unlimited authority concentrated in his hands. And I am not sure whether he will always be capable of using that authority with sufficient caution. Stalin is too rude, and this deficit, although quite tolerable in our midst and in dealing among us communists, becomes intolerable in a secretary general. That is why I suggest that the comrades think about a way of removing Stalin from that post and appointing another man in his stead. So basically Lenin wrote this all was, this. This was Lenin on his deathbed, wasn't it? Kind of almost well, like it, his it was Lenin right before his deathbed. He then had his third stroke, which totally incapacitated him. His notes, all these letters were suppressed. um, And Stalin, he he basically made all these rules saying they could only uh, uh, read Lenin's letters without taking notes, only to specific people, etc., etc., etc. And then the whole thing of him uh, not telling Trotsky about the funeral and uh, assuming centre stage at Lenin's funeral and becoming Stalin. Uh, yeah. Stalin, you know, went off then killing everybody and, you know, defeating the Nazis and all that kind of stuff uh, and became Stalin. But it was on the basis of of his dealing with Georgia that, that this whole thing happened. And the, the entire world history could have been different based on this Georgian affair. So anyway, just to mention, it, it's hugely significant, this thing. But uh, if Stalin hadn't done this, he wouldn't have been there to basically yeah. defeat Hitler. Would Trotsky have done it? Maybe. Hard to say. Um but did this this Transcaucasian Socialist Federative Soviet Republic was formed of Georgia, yeah. Armenia, Azerbaijan. They were all republics within the Federative Republic. And then within them, there were autonomous republics like Abkhazia and South Ossetia and, Ab- and Adjara. So the, the scene for the future conflicts is kind of already set in these autonomous regions. So... The, the country's been taken over by the Soviets. In 1924, there was a huge revolt, uh, which just kind of gives you an idea of how Georgia just kind of peters out, basically. Um, and this is how it is finally squashed. There, there's a fellow by the name of uh, Cholokashvili, who is a, a sort of a guerrilla leader, is a huge hero in Georgia. Uh, in 19, uh, 1922, I think, he was arrested by the Soviet security agents on charges of counter-revolutionary activities. 
but he escaped and escaped to the mountains where he formed a group of followers known as the Band of Sworn Men. Good name. The Bolsheviks, the Soviets. Yeah, it's a pretty cool name. The Bolsheviks used air force and artillery to squash the uprising uh, and he stayed in, in Chechnya, basically. And they held out for two years uh, performing revenge killings on Soviet secret police which made him a super huge hero. Eventually, though, his family were captured. Uh, He had to sneak across the border to Turkey and then eventually to France. Uh, And then for the next mm, 10, 20 years, Leverenci Beria Mm -hmm. was basically trying to accuse him of being a traitor, being a spy, trying to get him arrested by the French. Now, Beria Beria would go on to be... The head of Stalin's secret police... He uh, would go on to become the head of Stalin's oh, secret sorry. police, but he's actually from Georgia. Mm-hmm. And in Georgia, he became uh, gradually, you know, head of the secret police. He rooted out all of the uh, Iranian and Turkish spirings. Uh, he established his own super successful spirings. Uh, born in 1899, died in 53. He then became the first secretary of the Georgian Communist Party. Uh, he led the reprisals against the 1924 revolution, killing 10,000. He then organized uh, one of Stalin's great purges, where he killed, you know, many, 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 many more. In total, 150,000 Georgians were purged by Stalin yeah. over his uh, career. Wow. And Stalin really liked how Berea did it. So he got him to run his secret police, as you said, Joe, and just lots more killing. Berea... He's he's like uh, a horror story uh, villain, uh, as well as all the murder and the cruelty and his bonkers stuff. He he was also uh, a serial rapist, it seems, and he would prey on women who were found walking the streets. He would get the secret police to bring them to him. And there's a story in the BBC and I think the Independent as well of they found a mass grave at his old villa. Uh, which I think is now or was afterwards the the site of the Tunisian embassy. They were doing renovations and they found all of these female and children's bones uh, in the foundations of the place from the time of Berea. So, yeah, like a proper animal, like a really a nightmare of a human being. Anyway, from there, things get a little bit better. Um under Khrushchev's reforms in the 50s, Georgia did okay. Oh, no, okay. Oh, hey, oh, 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 hey, okay. oh, wait, hold on. We got, we got, world, we got okay. world War II. Uh, oh, sorry. In World sorry. War II, yeah. <laughs> You're always talking about World War II, Joe. Uh, much like your great-grandfather. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, so just, just real quick, uh, I don't have a lot on World War II. Um, the war wasn't actually fought in Georgia. Hitler was very keen to get to Georgia, but he never, never successfully did. Mm-hmm. He was keen to capture the oil wells of the Caucasus. It didn't work out. Uh, Georgia contributed about 700,000 troops to the war effort. But the most interesting thing about it is the, the Georgian Legion. And they fought on the, the Nazi side. They were made up of uh, immigrants from Georgia in France, but also areas like Poland as well. And the idea was that uh, they were fighting to get their homeland back, or at least that's what the, the Nazis told them. But the Nazis didn't really trust them. But in, in principle, racially, they liked them because they were, well, they were Caucasian, uh, quite literally, being from the Caucasus. So well, I think in their kind of they, they worldview... That was the opinion at the yeah. start, but... It, it changed over time, actually. Initially, there was some... I read even something that they were... According to Hitler, they were part Norwegian, in his view. Course, so yeah. they were grand, but they were not at all. And he, he changed his opinion as the war went on. 
and no more so. They actually fought with the Waffen SS with, you know, really hardcore Nazis, not just, you know, run of the mill uh, um, uh, army. In April 1945, a Georgian battalion was based in, in Holland on the island of uh, Tessel, and they completely revolted and slaughtered the German soldiers. They killed most of them in their sleep with bayonets and knives and in total silence and took the island. Um, this was towards the end of the war and they held out for about five weeks until they were basically mm. just like absolutely marmalized by, uh, uh, by German uh, artillery and uh, regular infantry units that reinvaded the island. Basically, the, the, the Nazis recruited loads of Georgians who were under the impression they were fighting for their homeland, but a lot of them were, they would either fight for the Nazis or be killed off, or you'd get captured by the Russians and sent to a gulag. Uh, and it was, a, you know, it did not work out for any of them. There's about 15,000 of them, I think, in, in, their, in their battalion. Wow. Uh, but yeah, pretty, pretty grim stuff. So, uh, Joe, Georgia in the aftermath of World War II, you want to... You want to illuminate that a little bit, a little bit for yes, us? So, more so in in the you know a decade later in the mid fifties, Khrushchev starts reforming the Soviet Union a little bit, and Georgia did pretty well out of this. Local Communist Party centralized control, the um, the, the the black economy, the kind of secret capitalism thrived. Uh, so official growth figures were rubbish, but home ownership and savings levels and secondary education among Georgians were really high. Um, among the highest of all Soviet Union's republics. But in order to keep this black economy going, corruption was really, really significant as well. Um, in 1964-72, Interior Minister Edward Shevardnadze um, developed a reputation as a fighter of corruption within the Georgian Communist Party. And in fact, he ousted the first secretary of the party as a corrupt person and then succeeded him which I'm always a bit suspicious of. It's like, this guy's corrupt. I'll take mm. his job. He was really, really um, well thought of by Moscow and to the extent that he became the Soviet foreign minister through the 80s, uh, leaving behind him a quite an effective successor as Georgian, um, oh, as Georgian premier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was, um, yeah. he was he Gorbachev's foreign minister uh, and was really considered instrumental in sort of easing the Soviet Union into yeah, to an end, sure. as it were. Yeah. So in 1990, the Soviet Union passes a law allowing republics to break away if they have a two-third majority in a referendum, which is what Georgia's going to do as the Soviet Union really comes to the end and starts to buckle and uh, and crumble. Um, Georgia is going to jump on the bandwagon this is and the declare end. itself My commie friends, the end. <laughs> I think here is a good point no as well. Or to, the end. <laughs> it's a good point here to uh, kind of jump in with an explanation of like how the Soviet Union was organized. And um, the listeners are getting a lot of information. Aren't they? There's a lot of information in this. So there's SSRs uh, within the Soviet Union, which are Soviet Socialist mm-hmm. Republics. Oh, so that was Ukraine, Belarus, Georgia, and ASSRs, Autonomous Socialist so- Soviet Republics. And ASSRs are basically tied to SSRs. So the two territories that we've mentioned before, which will become crucial after this point, are uh, Abkhazia and South Ossetia, both of which are ASSRs that are tied to within Georgia. Within the Georgian which, SSR. Within the Georgian SSR. 
So that's where we're at when the Soviet Union falls in 1991. Just before that, uh, I should mention the leader of the Georgian parliament, uh, Zvayad Gamsakurdia, which I looked that up on howtopronounce.com. It's got a five out of five <laughs> rating for difficulty. Nice. He, he calls for a referendum on, on Georgian independence. Uh, he's a pretty controversial guy. His party stood for freedom from the so uh, Soviet Union, but he'd been criticized himself even before he was elected as kind of a demagogue and I guess you could say like a Stalinist kind of figure. Uh, he definitely had All his right. had his uh, some very clear ideas on how he wanted Georgia to to be run. So so he was very much against freedom of the press. Human rights was not top of his uh, agenda. It's overrated. Yeah. So he calls for a referendum on independence, which passes just before, just before the fall of the Soviet Union in, I think it's 1991. And then South Ossetia just goes crazy. So South Ossetia then, uh, which is, uh, as we mentioned, an ASSR, so it's tied to Georgia, begins to push for its own independence. And that leads to the first South Ossetia war in 1990. Georgia, as now a de facto independent country, uh, refuses to recognize the independence of South Ossetia, uh, which is, fair. you could argue, somewhat hypocritical, but uh, fair enough. So <laughs> violence breaks out in in and around... Uh, sh sh I'm, I don't even know how to... Valley. Sh <laughs> somewhere, Shin somewhere. Shin Valley. Shin Valley, Shin Valley yeah. which okay. is uh, sort of the... Shin Valley. The, the uh, capital of South Ossetia. Valley of the Shins. In December 1990, then, a uh, state of emergency is declared by the Georgian parliament uh, and troops are dispatched from Russia and Georgia. And the commander of the Georgian troops is appointed as mayor of Shinvali. Citizens okay. are disarmed. A bit odd. And, he had very large shins. Yeah. And citizens are disarmed in South Ossetia. Militia groups are disbanded uh, forcibly and Georgia in imposes a blockade on South Ossetia by disconnecting electricity, uh, blockading roads, and uh, South Ossetians then begin to sort of hold themselves up in their own villages and prepare for a fight. So Georgia, from the get-go, was being destabilized from the inside. Yeah. As soon as independence is declared, almost, you have mm -hmm. regions trying to break away from Georgia uh, itself. So you have declarations of independence going on all over the place. Well, the fall of the Soviet Union was a mess. Yeah. Just for context for people, um, this is also the same area of the world as Chechnya. If mm, anybody right remembers that conflict in the south of south of Russia, that's that's the kind of area we're talking about. Super mountainous, super like people who are very good at guerrilla warfare. I mean, we've we've talked about a few different times in you know over the the hundreds of years uh, where so-and-so was beaten by someone and he went into the hills that was that was what what they did because that's where they're safe that's where they know the territory and that's where they're very very good at picking people off so it yep. ends up it's very easy to have a long protracted conflict in this kind of a landscape uh maybe similar uh similar type of area would be afghanistan for that matter it's just this place which is just made for warfare and the people are tough as nails and just don't don't go messing there because it'll go badly wrong. Yep. So the the independence referendum in 1991 passed with a 98.9 percent approval rating. So people were clearly uh, fans of breaking away from the Soviet Union. Quite popular. In May 1991, uh, Gamshakurdia is elected the president of Georgia, newly independent Georgia, with 86 percent of the vote, which uh, will become important. A healthy. Later. Yep. That's a very healthy majority. 
Um, but not but suspiciously as we high. Mentioned, <laughs> not too suspiciously high. As we mentioned earlier, then, he begins to implement an authoritarian style of government and sort of the power of paramilitary groups and his private police forces and this kind of thing uh, begin to rise in the country. So in 1991, December 1991, a coup is launched in Tbilisi. So people already within a year or so are uh, sort of getting sick of this guy and his being under his thumb. He flees to Chechnya, which you just mentioned, um, Mark. So just seven months after his election, uh, with 86% of the vote, he is forced to flee the country. And it's time for a comeback um, yeah. of of our old friend Eduard Shevardnadze, who, what, he, the, pres- the office of president is dissolved. Yep, he steps into the power vacuum That's and very kind of takes him. over uh, Georgia. Uh, 19, end of 1991, the Soviet Union, although it's been crumbling for a while, officially collapses. Mm-hmm. And then in 1992, we have clashes between pro and anti Gamshakordia forces uh, throughout the country. Uh, in 1992, we have kind of the outbreak, or the I, I guess you could even more say the boil over of uh, as another conflict Tensions in Abkhazia. And... Yeah, uh, in yeah in Abkhazia, which we mentioned, Shevardnadze then sort of scales down. Uh, the conflict in South Ossetia to focus on Abkhazia instead. So he's sort of like, here, let's let's try to sort of end this conflict here so we can focus on this other breakaway region, right, which okay. is uh, right. much larger and looks to be a lot more unstable, I would say. So he signs the Russian brokered uh, Sochi agreement. There'll be a few of those, uh, but the the right. Russian or the Georgians apparently the pro- like to like to sign uh, agreements with breakaway regions in Sochi. Uh, so she's a really nice place. Right beside, uh, it's right beside Abkhazia as well. Yeah. It's just across the border. Yeah. So they kind of scale down the the conflict uh, in South Ossetia and try try to keep things reasonably peaceful there. Even though, as we'll come to find out, that's you know that's a lot to hope for in these in these breakaway regions. Mm-hmm. So the war in Abkhazia officially breaks out in 1992 and lasts for over a year. Uh, compared to the conflict in South Ossetia, in terms of just casualty numbers alone. Uh, the conflict is a lot more devastating to Georgia. A result of the war is uh, more than 250,000 people, mainly Georgians, fled and were forced out of Abkhazia. And a lot more people, like a, lo- a, a significant number of people died as well. We're, ta- we're talking in the, in the thousands and tens of thousands, I believe. Good Lord. Yeah, this, I guess, I, I again, to give you guys a peek behind the curtain, I messaged the guys, the other two co-hosts, a few nights ago when I was researching this this conflict. And said, oh God! Oh, at a point no. that I, I just had to stop oh. reading and just kind of like put my put my laptop away, because there's there's some serious, uh, seriously awful stuff that happened in this conflict. If you were interested, yeah, I would recommend that you go take a look yourself. I'm not going to get into it because it really we'll is. We'll put some stuff in the show grim. notes to to point you in the right direction. But the yeah. word ethnic cleansing is is what it boils ethnic down to. Ethnic cleansing, yeah. Abkhazian so, nightmare stuff. It is pretty yeah. nightmarish. It's it's pretty terrible. So Abkhazia had enjoyed sort of some degree of autonomy during the Soviet era and wasn't very happy about, you know, being forced under the thumb of Georgia. The April 9th tragedy, which I think we, we mentioned earlier, was the start of ethnic conflicts between Abkhazia and Georgia. That was when troubles flared up in a university 
where students uh, in, I think it was in Abkhazia, students clashed over the issue of Abkhazian independence from Georgia and uh, the police had to be brought in and there were a few people killed. And in 1992, then that's when the, uh, when the actual war breaks out. So that's when Abkhaz militants attack the government buildings in Sukhumi, which is the largest city, I believe, in Abkhazia and kind of like the de facto capital of Abkhazia, I think. And in in July 1992, then the government of Abkhazia declares independence from Georgia. It's like, we're sick of this. And I read that they even emptied some of their jails in order to gather more troops. They just sort of like oh, took people I out of prison and too. gave them... Yeah. Yeah, they took people out of prison and just Prisoner armed conscripts. Them. Yeah. yeah. And said, you're fighting for us. Uh, you're fighting for Abkhazian independence. And here you go. Here's a gun. Oh, boy. What could go wrong? Always top quality people in in jails you know they're they're who you exactly want. so in 1992 throughout 1992 there are incidents of rapes uh ethnic cleansing just a lot of georgians and abkhazians on both sides were were slaughtered there's various reports of uh torture and this conflict definitely plums the depths of yeah uh human depravity yeah but at, at the end we end up with essentially a, a de facto independent abkhazia like georgia doesn't we do recognize we do. It as independent but um yeah i mean and, uh, just a couple of things to mention i guess like at one point uh abkhaz forces shot down three georgian civilian airliners which they claimed had wow. soldiers aboard but uh, killed uh, 136 people in total a lot of people then who were attempting to flee abkhazia particularly from the city sukumi uh, a lot of people were attempting to flee on the roads or by foot and they were shot or starved to death or oh, you know God. Uh, so as i mentioned no up to 250,000 people uh mainly georgians but some greeks and muslims as well were forced there, out of abkhazia greeks, greeks have been living in that area from from jason and the argonauts day like it's there's always yeah, been yeah, greeks yeah. on the coast of the black sea yeah. Yeah, I mean, like I said, if you want to read into more of that conflict, it's again, it's, it makes for very, very Don't. grim reading. But yeah, I wouldn't recommend it. it. But there, there are, there are quotes. That was uh, that's that's probably yeah, the worst that, part that, of it. There are quotes from yeah, from yeah. survivors of uh, some of these massacres and kind of mass rapes and things, things like that. That that just uh, you know are. I, I immediately had to uh, apologize to somebody and then tell them. Yeah. Uh, once once I heard that, I was like, I. I just can't keep thinking about this. I need to apologize to somebody for telling them this and then tell them this uh, because, yeah, it's real. And then apologize again. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and exactly. From from a regional point of view, um, Russia officially denies any involvement in provoking this, this uh, breakaway conflict. But Georgia mm. is, is very sure that, that it's all about widening its sphere of influence and, and keeping keeping georgia unstable yeah i mean so there the thing about it is, opinions that, is that, that yeah for for a long while georgia or russia has been accused of kind of backing these breakaway regions uh, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. as we mentioned earlier they're sort of pro-soviet uh have been for a long time mm -hmm. and they're a, they would represent a very like both of them are on the russian border so yeah. they represent a very easy way for Russia to kind of extend its sphere of influence. It's very reminiscent of what happened in Crimea in recent years. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, also, I would say in the context of looking at like with the conflict happening in Chechnya from, I think, like 97 onwards, it, it would make sense mm-hmm. to the Russians to not want to have a strong Georgia because a strong Georgia would potentially resent Russia and would then help those in Chechnya. So, uh, you know, if, if Russia is trying to deal with with an issue in their their own side of the border, they would probably prefer that the whole area is weak and a mess. That 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 is probably what would strategically serve their interests in that context. So. It makes sense that they would support these rebellions or whatever you want to call them, breakaway separatist groups in uh, in Georgian territory. So basically in 1993, Zvayan Gamsha the ousted former president, takes advantage of the the chaos the in mess. the region. Yeah, the mess that Georgia is at the time to uh, invade and kind of rally a, a group of troops around him and tried to force a coup in the country. Georgian forces were obviously stretched quite thin. They didn't really have a lot of equipment and sort of manpower to fight back against even just this small incursion. Yeah. They're, they're essentially fighting then on three fronts. Yeah. So Georgia, I would say against its sort of best wishes, would uh, has to join the... CIS, the Commonwealth of Independent States, which is kind of like a, a super team, uh, uh, a term that we've used before, of kind of post-Soviet nations, it, including Russia. It, it's the Russian EU, yeah. yeah. Belarus, Ukraine, countries like that. They appealed to the CIS for aid, particularly to Russia. So even though they're they're aware that Russia has been attempting actively to destabilize the country, yeah, they sort of have very little choice but to call on them for help when Gamshikordia pops his head up again. So throughout 1993, uh, up until about the end of 1993, they're fighting on that front as well. Gamshikordia is eventually pursued by government forces and chased out of the country. And in at the end of 1993, he dies uh, in exile in an apparent suicide, but some people claim that he was assassinated or that maybe he was shot by one of his, his rivals or something like that. But th- there's still some discrepancies around how he died. Of course. But he died in, in exile anyway. He had a pretty shooty kind of life, so if somebody shot him, you know, it's not that mad. Yeah, yeah. So between 1992 and 1998, uh, Zviadists, that's what they call people who are loyal to this guy, Gamsha Kurdia, uh, they attempt to assassinate President Shevardnadze three times, uh, all of which he survives. Wow. I think two of them were car bombs, as far as I know, and uh, he yeah. survived both. And in the, I guess... The years after those conflicts, so around 1994, 1995, Georgia enters a real low point. It's kind of got these two breakaway regions that are that are bloody and brutal conflicts. And is trying to hold on to them while also trying to stabilize itself in the post-Soviet era. I have a clip here from a BBC podcast, Witness is called. Uh, and oh yeah, it kind of yeah, talks I about yes, yeah. Let's listen to that. It talks about the state of the country at the time and how sort of there were a, there was a lot of different gangs that were in power around Georgia, and no real no real rule of law at all. And uh, they, they interviewed a nurse on this podcast who talks about using patients with TB to defend a hospital against gang members who were seeking drugs from the hospital. The Mechadrioni, which had now gained a large following, were roaming the streets unchecked. Lamara even remembers how one night some of its members broke into the hospital building. She devised a plan to use her patience to deter the gangs. 
We told the gangs that if they enter hospital, we ask our patients to cough and to transmit infection, and they will be ill with TB processes just in two or three months. And, you know, they really were frightened. So they were desperate for narcotics, these gangs, but as soon as you told them they might get tuberculosis, they ran away. Yes, because TB is not simple diseases. It's very problematic and uh, serious diseases, so they really were afraid. So at this at this low point, I guess, for Georgia, then uh, we have the country appealing to almost anywhere it can find aid from. And the mm. U.S. comes to the aid of Georgia. They kind of attempt to sort of westernize the country somewhat and, you know, win back this post-Soviet territory uh, on behalf of the West. So in 2002, then uh, the U.S. sends hundreds of special operations forces to train the military in Georgia, which kind of antagonizes Russia somewhat. And in the following year, they secure a $3 billion project for the Caspian Mediterranean Pipeline, which is the Baku-Tbilisi-Seyhan Pipeline, which will take oil out of, uh, is it Azerbaijan? Um, Azerbaijan, yeah. yeah. uh, Into the Mediterranean. Uh, That's a Uh US-backed project. Uh, In 2003, uh, Mikhail Shakashvili who will become kind of a, a big figure in the, in the history of Georgia over the next few years. He's a very young minister, and he leads efforts to oust the Shevardnadze government, which many, you know, many believe and I think has kind of been proved in, in hindsight that his elections to president in subsequent years, particularly, a little bit, uh, particularly a little in 2000, bit. are yeah, a bit rigged. In November 2003, then we have the Rose Revolution, which is a pro-Western transition of power and comes after 20 days of protests. It's kind of remarkable. It was it was bloodless, right? It was bloodless, yeah. And it carried roses into the parliament, I read. That's where the name comes from, yeah. So after after about 20 days of, of protest, uh, this guy, Shakashvili, he uh, negotiates with Shevardnadze to resign. And re- I, I guess, re- surprisingly, he does. Uh, this guy who kind of has held on to power through rigged elections for a number of years he just he just decides to take to step down the way the wind is blowing and yeah and, uh, so yeah. he steps down uh Shakashvili, he wins in the next parliamentary elections he wins 96 percent of the vote and his united national wow. movement party are overwhelmingly voted into power that's decisive Shakashvili himself had only just turned 36 so he's one of the youngest presidents <laughs> in the world at the time and appointed yeah. a very young cabinet and one of the one of the interesting tidbits I had here, I thought was just by itself is very interesting, is uh, the way that he reformed the police force in Georgia. So okay. before he came to power, the police force had been extremely corrupt, and there was mm. very little rule of law, a lot of gang influences, and that kind of thing. And particularly on the roads, like the the traffic core, were extremely corrupt. So you could just sort of do whatever you wanted, and and if you had enough money to pay for it, then you were fine. Shakashvili campaigned on the back of a promise to reform the police department, and he did. In his first day in office, he put an ultimatum in place and said that all bribes on the road must cease within a week. And if not, all policemen found guilty of bribery would be fired and imprisoned to 10 years. And up to 15,000 people were, right. were fired on the first day. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, 85% of staff in the police force within a couple of years were new hires. 
And it was a very difficult transition because sort of they went from having a really corrupt police force to having almost no police force and having to build it back up again. All the police scratch, in prison. Which is better. Yeah. By the end of 2006, the uh, his administration had abolished this kind of KGB style police uh, force and Secret Popo. had dismissed every member of the country's uniform police and created a new police force entirely from scratch. And by 2009, it was pretty clear that the strategy had worked. There was significantly more confidence in the police force, significantly less corruption. I think he even, uh, I read he even built sort of glass fronted police houses, which is very metaphorical, oh. just to uh, kind of. Yes, I did yeah, see that. Just yeah, to yeah. kind of illustrate just how transparent his new police force were. And I just have a quick quote here from uh, a guy who worked in his administration and was kind of key in the police reforms and later became a U.S. ambassador. This guy is uh, Batu Kutelia, I think is his name. And I actually found him on LinkedIn. Uh, he has 71 <laughs> recommendations for international relations. So that's oh, good going. Fair enough. He said, uh, we compared our situation to building a ship in the middle of the sea while sailing while also learning how to sail and while you have somebody attacking you and trying to sink your ship that was the reality wow. so uh yeah that kind of illustrates just how difficult <laughs> that was a... to reform such a key part of the country's infrastructure but they did it This is a real shift in, in, in like an almost a generational shift from like the Soviet era to a kind of a modern European. Yeah, this Western kind of pro-Western, very democratic. Okay, almost trying to make a new country, yeah. like it, yeah. it's, it's yeah. the way it looks. So, I mean, that, that kind of brings us up to recent about, yeah, recent history, I yeah. guess. So, I mean, I'm going to go a little, a little bit back, just to give some context of this, this the, the most famous thing about Georgia is the 2008 uh, Russian-Georgian War. I won't lie, that's when I first became aware of it, when that was yeah, in the news. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a pretty small area of the world. It's actually the size of Ireland. It's, this, it's uh, I think, 69,000 square kilometres. Okay. Similar Ireland's kind 70. of population so it's, as well. It's, it's almost... Ex- it's 3.5 million to Ireland's yeah. 4.5. It's yeah, it's basically a country the size of Ireland, sandwiched between Russia and Iran and various other empires and stuff. Um, after the fall of communism and the Berlin Wall, NATO saw an open door to recruit some of these uh, basically you know new countries or revivified countries into into NATO to strengthen itself. So NATO formed this organization called uh, Partnership for Peace, and the idea was to to hold out the olive branch to to these countries, but also to to, to Russia as well. Um, and many of these countries joined the organization, including Russia. Uh, several uh, ended up becoming NATO members, to give you an example, Poland, Hungary, etc. Russia is in it. In fact, Ireland is in this organization. And I was reading Switzerland and Sweden are both in it as well. So it's, it's not necessarily a military partnership. It's more sort of a conversation, partnership, friendship kind of thing. But Georgia was obviously very keen to to try to push for full NATO membership, uh, which is totally against what uh, 
Russia, NATO is basically seen as America by Russia, yep. and they want to try to constrain NATO at, at, at every turn. In 2001, Georgia started having joint exercises with NATO. In 2003, uh, the Rose Revolution happened. Uh, Shevardnadze, the Russians didn't lo- really love Shevardnadze, he, even though he had been a former Russian foreign minister, former Soviet foreign minister. Uh, Putin apparently, and a lot of Russians, viewed him as one of the reasons for the fall of communism. Mm-hmm. Then they brought in uh, uh, Saakashvili through the Rose Revolution. And the, the guy who was there in Russia at this time, you might have heard of him. His name's Vladimir Putin. Uh, it's, this, it's the same guy who's there. So the other side of this, um, the Russians were promoting uh, a lot of different things in these, these breakaway areas of uh, Abkhazia and South Ossetia. Things like uh, promoting the ability of them to get Russian passports. Um, also uh, allowing them to persecute Georgians in... Uh, sorry, uh, the Russians were a little bit... Well, certainly were, were accused of persecuting ethnic Georgians in Russian territory. Uh, a lot of where I got uh, this information came from a book called uh, The Guns of uh, August 2008, Russia's War in Georgia, from uh, Svante Cornell and Frederick Starr. It's a pretty good book. Uh, it had a lot of interesting kind of perspectives on it. So in 2004... Uh, there was the Adjara crisis. And Adjara is one of these many areas that has its, you know, somewhat breakaway tendencies, not entirely dissimilar to Abkhazia and South Ossetia. Mm-hmm. But it's down and, towards and they had this, Turkey. And, the, and it's yeah, a Muslim it's a, region. it's a different area. And the, the head guy there was Aslan Abshidze. And he was, you know, kind of ruling the place as his own personal fiefdom. He wasn't keen on this new anti-corruption push. Um and he actually blew up the bridges from Georgia into into Adjara and he cracked down on protesters locally and so on. But it, it proved counterproductive. It actually pushed his, his local people towards rebellion. They joined with Georgia. I think Georgia was also funneling a lot of money in, was trying to improve the infrastructure and stuff. And Georgia won this battle and convinced the locality, you know what, we're better off in a united, Western looking, uh, modernized Georgia. Uh, I say this because this is what was in the mind of of the Georgian administration when things started to go south with Abkhazia and South Ossetia. They had had this victory. They had done it their way and they had won and they thought that they could maybe do it again in these bigger, more, more long-winded uh, conflicts in Abkhazia and South Ossetia. They, they offered a federal model to uh, Abkhazia and South Ossetia but the the Russians and the regional governments didn't really see an upside to this. They were like, we kind of have that and we kind of maybe would prefer to be closer to the bigger brother, to be to, to Russia. Both the Russians and Georgians were flooding Abkhazia and South Ossetia with aid money, trying to basically buy their friendship and buy the goodwill. I think, as, as, as you said, Luke, earlier, the US were pumping money into the Georgian armed forces. This is a little bit in part because Georgia had agreed to join the coalition of the willing and were fighting in Iraq. So uh-huh. the Georgian army was also getting beefed up and was getting super experienced as well. So you had, a, you had guys who had actual experience of actual conflict. Um, the Georgian government was uh, really concerned about the opposition. They, they were struggling to get purchased with public opinion in, in these areas. And they, they had their own opposition in Georgia. Like they, they'd been brought in by, by this Rose Revolution, but there was other groups there who were still pushing against them. In particular, uh, this kind of uh, uh, Russian oligarch called Basri Patarkatsishvili, who had more money. I, I read that he had more money than the rest of Georgia. Uh, he was one of these oil oligarchs who made bonkers amounts of money 
uh, as the state oil apparatus was was sold off for you know pennies in the dollar. And he's involved with uh, Bramovich and Petrovsky and all, all of these, uh, uh, Khodorovsky, all these guys in, in, in Russia. So he, he is one of these guys, one of these uh, oligarchs comes in and starts funding the opposition. So Georgia is, again, scared for itself. They've got a decently sized army. They've already had a big success. I'm just trying to give you the idea of, of why they were maybe a little bit a little bit more aggressive than you might expect for a country that is you know potentially going to war with Russia. Russia even tried to be friends with the Georgian government initially because they didn't really like the predecessor. He was the guy who, you know, in their view, destroyed the USSR. So they tried to to buddy up to, to the new government. Um, but it didn't really work out. Eventually, Russia just kind of lost confidence in this in this route. They dropped sanctions that they had had on Abkhazia and South Ossetia. They got directly in touch with these local um, dissident government units. And they started, you know, probably feeding in military hardware. There's this there's this whole thing where a Georgian drone got shot down. I think, I think a few of the, them actually. In, there's a few the there's two or three in, or incidences of Georgian drones being shot down over Abkhazian yeah. territory, I think. And I, I actually remember reading this at the time. The Georgians had bought their drones from Israel. They were Israeli made drones. And apparently the Russians became they, big they admirers have good relations of the Israeli... with Israel because um they have a long history of kind of Jewish populations and stuff. Yeah, um, but they they bought these. Um, I don't think you need to have good relations necessarily with Israel to buy their stuff. I think no, the Israelis are but perfectly to want to. willing to to sell their stuff. But uh, the, the Georgians bought these uh, Israeli drones, and the the Russians admired them so much they bought some of their own after all this. Uh, after all this cooled down, uh, they they were like they're killing our guys real good. Nice. <laughs> um, <laughs> I remember thinking like that is. That has some cold-blooded Russian opinions right there. Um, but what happened was that these uh, these Georgian drones were getting shot down. And uh, uh, they were getting shot down very obviously by MiGs, by, you know, the, the old Soviet uh, uh, fighter planes. And um, what was it? The, the, the Russian uh, foreign minister said, uh, maybe they're uh, NATO's MiGs. Yeah, that's probably it. It's probably NATO that shot them down. And a representative from NATO, whose name is Yap Duhoop Sheffer, said he Great would name. eat his tie if this was the case. Uh, th- things just start to get bad real fast. Uh, in July, uh, there was assassination attempts on both sides of the South Ossetian political divide. Russians flew in Georgian airspace with you know, no apology and, and no explanation. And just admitted to it as well. They were just so, like, yep, yeah, we're just going to yeah, fly here. They were doing we it, we yeah. can do this. Okay. Back off. Yeah. Uh, Georgia soldiers were captured by Ossetian forces. The U.S. kind of showed that they weren't going to back up Georgia. Mm-hmm. All they did was they allowed uh, U.S. Um, uh, air cargo transport ships to move the Georgian soldiers fighting in Iraq back to Georgia. Uh, then a lot of Russian forces started to build up in, in uh, South Ossetia, especially. They were supposedly there as peacekeepers, repairing railroads, etc. But whether they were there in an aggressive capacity they for sure emboldened the South Ossetian forces because they started shelling and mortaring uh, nearby Georgian villages. So start of August 2008, this just starts getting worse and worse. There's a car bombing. A bunch of Georgian uh, policemen are are injured and killed with an IED. Uh, Sniper fire on both sides. Russia evacuates the South Ossetians into North Ossetia, which is actually in Russia. Uh, And then around August 7th, there is this kind of Rubicon where the Russian regular army 
are amassing by this this tunnel. I think it's the, the Goki Tunnel. It's sort of the Roki Tunnel, and it leads directly into South Ossetia through through the Caucasus. And the Georgian president, knowing this from his intelligence uh, organizations, he issues an order saying no returning fire, even when the South Ossetians are shooting. You're not allowed to return fire. He's desperately trying to stop this turning into a full Russian versus Georgian war. And there's this quote. I want to acknowledge that several hours ago, I, as Supreme Commander, issued a very painful order not to return fire in response to very intense shelling. It, it, it didn't, didn't make a difference. Uh, the Russians moved through the tunnel. Uh, they flooded South Ossetia with, um, with Russian hardware and regular Russian troops. And and it was very much on. On August 8th, then, South Ossetian separatists begin to attack Georgian peacekeepers. They completely ignore a ceasefire that had been in place before that point. Shakashvili sends his troops into South Ossetia, and Russia responds by moving its troops past the border, flying aircrafts over Georgia, and uh, even beginning airstrikes in South Ossetia. The US, Britain, and NATO all call for a ceasefire immediately, but uh, Russia doesn't doesn't listen uh and then on august 10th uh russian troops and tanks move through south Ossetia, uh and the u.s responds by kind of sending humanitarian aid to georgia which clearly is going to become overwhelmed very quickly but then as quickly as it all began uh on august 12th russia halts its advance into georgia and there's a peace that's brokered by french president nicolas sarkozy and uh, russian president medvedev Nah, Nicolas Sarkozy was is it EU president? EU president like it kind of rotates between different nations. Oh yes, he, he, and yeah, he was president of the EU. Yeah, France then, yeah. had the presidency of the EU at that that time. So they announced a six point plan for peace. Uh, and on the fifteenth, uh, three days after that plan is announced, Shakashvili signs a ceasefire agreement with Russia, and Medvedev signs the same agreement the following day. So it's only. You know, it, it it was global news at the time. It was the first kind of European land war uh, of the 21st century. Yeah. yeah. Which was obviously a huge thing. But... Well, well yeah, the 21st century. But I, I, I think, yeah. but, I think t- to expect it to go on any longer misunderstands the motivation. Yeah. You know, Russia's interest in isn't in an independent South Ossetia. It's in a, a destabilized a Georgia. Georgia. So that that so, I mean, Russia very much kind of achieved, achieved that goal. its aims of destabilizing Georgia entirely again and stopping it joining NATO sure. because it has a territorial dispute outstanding. Mm-hmm. So on August twenty sixth, Russian President Dmitry Medvedev signs an order recognizing the independence of South Ossetia and Abkhazia again, destabilizing the region entirely. U.S. President George Bush at the time says the United States condemns the decision by the Russian president to recognize as independent states the Georgian region of South Ossetia and Abkhazia. The territorial integrity and borders of Georgia must be respected, just as those of Russia or any other country. I think the only other country to recognise these places, if I'm not mistaken, is Nauru, our old friend from season one. One of the only countries, yeah. uh, Nauru Nauru and, uh, was it maybe Serbia? Because of the Kosovo link? Oh, could be. Nauru recognized them, I think, for a fee. Yeah. Uh, and not necessarily in perpetuity. We saw with Nauru that they recognized Taiwan and then they rec- recognized mm. China and then back to Taiwan. Um, but uh, I'm not sure if they but still recognize Abkhazia pretty, South Ossetia. Pretty much but the whole so. world doesn't agree. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
So, yeah, in, in all, the war lasted for just about five days. Uh, around 67 Russian forces were killed and 169 Georgians. Shakashvili had kind of made inroads into calming the whole thing down and, like we mentioned, ma- making moves towards a Western, more westernized Georgia. Yeah. And that was completely destabilized by this war. In November 2008, Russia kind of talks about plans to build up military bases in South Ossetia and Abkhazia. And in 2009, Russia makes it illegal to sell, supply, or transfer military production to Georgia and prohibits the use of Russian railways, waters, air, and airspace for military cooperation with Georgia. So I guess that kind of brings us up pretty much to the modern day. Tensions mm-hmm. between yep. both sides have remained pretty high ever since. And the most recent developments are in 2015. Uh, Russian back forces moved the boundary fence between Russian-occupied South Ossetia and Georgia, basically just kind of creeping the border further and further south and sort of claiming more and more land for South Ossetia and therefore for Russia. There was an article back in January of this year with um, just talking to some farmer who came home and found his his farm was now no longer in Georgia. He went away on holidays and came back. It's now in South Ossetia. Yeah, but interestingly... There's been little resistance by the Georgian authorities. I, I, I don't know if it's kind of a ch- turn the, the other cheek sort of thing, or if they're from talking to some people that that and, and reading around that it's it's basically just they're not willing. The current administration aren't willing to start a shooting war again. They're just not willing to make that. Yeah, and it. if it costs a couple of kilometers, and they know they'll have to go that far. That's politically expedient, and that's you know it's not worth the blood that would be spilt from from Georgia's point of view. To stop this creeping occupation, yeah, um, because they know what it actually means. That they like, there's there's no way that they're going to have an open and frank dialogue with like, their friends. If, nope. if they, it's going to be a shooting if war they stop at least. South Ossetia's independence. They're going to stop it wholesale. They're not going to stand at the border every day and yeah. stop a, a few meters being being taken. But my my understanding is also that ever since stuff um, the situation in the Ukraine kicked off and the Crimean annexation Russia's focus has kind of shifted that direction and away from Georgia and as a result relations between the two countries are now stable and um, yeah but less than they were and and also to say that like Crimea is right beside yep. Georgia. It's like really, really close. They're both uh, they're both edging on the Black mm-hmm. Sea. Like they're it, it is very much the same kind of area mm-hmm. of the world. So it they may be focusing on one area rather than another, yeah. but like still. But for now, um, pending any future yeah. developments, the relationships are pretty stable, and and Georgia's focusing on looking west and trying to deepen its relationships with Europe. Uh, there's even talk of wanting to join the EU at some point, which would be quite a dramatic departure yeah that ain't happening um in a, in a totally selfish note i hope nothing happens because that would obviously date our podcast uh, yay um yes. and then the current president uh georgi magvelashvili was elected in 2013 and he seems to have been a bit of an outsider kind of a philosopher character from an, a new political party called i think georgian dream or something to that effect and he uh, seems to have devolved significant power to the Prime Minister. He, I think he's thought of as in quite a positive light as being um, intelligent and, and not particularly aggressive. So I think his, his focus is on diffusing tensions with Russia and uh, seems to be having some success, at least. So that's where, that's where George is at today. Um, 
Should we talk about how the economy is doing? Uh, pretty yeah. well. It's doing all right. It's, it's kind of growing. Yeah. Uh, they were flat for a while after after the 2008 war. I guess it scared off. I mean, that that uh, Shakashvili guy was very keen on getting mm-hmm. inward investment. He wanted to like look professional, look the part, uh, show he was secure, show there wasn't much corruption. Uh, it does show as being like even today, really really high up in the rankings of ease of places to do business. It's like tenth mm-hmm. in the world or something like that. With Singapore being number one, they're really high up there. The economy. I took some notes from the CIA World Factbook. A uh, lot of still a mm-hmm. lot of wine. That eight percent of the economy is in in wine, basically, a mostly homegrown wine. So it's kind of small scale farming is 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 a big industry, but half of all people work in small agriculture. Still have gold mines, so you know for thousands of years, gold and wine, which is you know pretty 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 good. <laughs> I would like my economy to be made of gold and wine. That would be fantastic. Yeah, and tourism is really growing. So over the last five years. They've increased, they've kind of doubled their tourism numbers to about 2.3 million visitors in 2015. So um, they're using the slogan at the moment, Europe started here, which is kind of interesting. That shows the focus they're putting on it. And it really is a beautiful, beautiful place. Yeah. Abkhazia particularly is is kind of used to be sort of a Soviet resort, I guess, sort of area. It's right on the Black Sea. No, we'll put we'll put a few videos in the show notes, and you can see like the mountains and the the, the these cave fortresses, like um, like Varzia are just spectacular. Every church in the country seems to have been built on a dramatic hill, uh, and a couple of shabby monks yeah. in the cave just looking at it. Um, shabby monks. It's just a shame that it's it's such a kind of blood soaked region at this point, and again, kind of quite a quite a tense sort uh-huh. of a, a place, I guess, politically. Um, I've got an interesting story here for, in 2011, just a kind of interesting side note. Um, the entire country of Armenia uh, lost internet access for up to 12 hours after a 75-year-old woman in Georgia broke a fiber line with her shovel uh, while she was scavenging nice. for copper in Tbilisi. Uh, that's, that's a lot of power to have. Um, I, I came across... A really interesting little documentary a guy made when he was teaching English in a small Georgian village. And it's just really quite nice to see one-to-one interactions he has with, with individuals in this small village. You really get a sense of, firstly, how beautiful the place is and how gener- how hospitable the people are. There's this saying in Georgia that, that um, guests are a gift from God. And that's kind of how they structure mm their interaction mm. with strangers and it really um is, is worth having a look at to kind of get a sense of what real life might be like in in these small villages i've got a couple of bits and pieces one that they have a, a huge amount of hydropower there partially because it's so mountainous uh, it provides 78 percent of their electricity usage and that's despite the fact that they have this huge oil line going from uh, uh, azerbaijan through georgia into into turkey mm. i think it goes into looking at things like their culture and their food and stuff it's massive like the amount of like specific foods they have to their area is bonkers and it all looks amazing the one thing i would mention is kachapuri which is a kind of a cheese bread which I, I've actually had and is 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 heavy going, but it is it is bonkers good. Uh, so, from what I read, at least football is the the main sport. Uh, they've got a couple of players people might have heard of: uh, Shodar Veladze, who played for Ajax and Rangers; Georgi Kinkeladze, who played for Man City and Ajax; and in particular, Kaka Kaladze, who was always a favorite of mine when I was a kid. He played for uh, AC Milan. And he was the most expensive Georgian player ever, bought for 16 million. But just a bit of trivia on him. 
he's now the deputy prime minister. Oh. Uh, he, yeah, he's the, wow. that's where he went. If people remember that team, there was actually two guys called Kaka in that team. There was Kaka. The Brazilian guy. And there was guy. Kaka Kaladza. The Brazilian guy, yeah. The former, like, yeah. I think he was World Player of the Year at one point. But uh, Kaka Kaladza, I did not know this. In 2001, when he got, uh, he, when he moved from, I think it was uh, Shakhtar in, uh, or maybe Dynamo Kiev in, in Ukraine, uh, to AC Milan, his brother got kidnapped in Georgia uh, and was held for ransom. They never found the brother, and they, they found some remains in 2008, which they realized then was the brother. So his, his brother was kidnapped and killed in Georgia, and then he went on to be deputy prime minister. And apparently when his brother was killed, or when his brother was taken hostage, he considered leaving the Georgian national team because he was so, I guess, distraught, ashamed of his country, etc., etc., but he decided that he would, you know, stick with it for the Georgian people as a as a true patriot. So there, the most wins that Georgia has has had in football is uh, eight wins, I believe, and it's against Albania. But the most losses they've had, their big bogey team is the Republic of Ireland. Hey. Played eight, lost eight. Yeah, I just mentioned that. Uh, nice. Joe, you mentioned uh, rugby. Yeah, rugby is also quite big, and apparently its popularity is is because it resembles a traditional Georgian game called Lelo, and that's the nickname for their for their team, the Lelos or the yeah. Lelos. As we as we release this episode, a Jara-born Russian cosmonaut Fyodor Yurchikin, who is a kind of ethnic Greek Georgian who who joined the uh, Russian cosmonaut program back in the day, he's currently uh, I think flight commander on the International Space Station. Um, so yeah. he is a hero of the Russian Federation medal and is currently zooming around in space. That's how far Georgians can go if they want to. Just to, to finish on a, on a nice note, the, the, the core of Georgian culture is the supra, from what I can tell. These are traditional feasts people have with family and friends where you basically spend mm. the whole night making elaborate toasts to peace and to the children and to the country, and to the, the ancestors. And the traditional dancing from Georgia is just spectacular. The costumes, and it basically, they mimic... Uh, there's one particular dance where, where there's two male dancers, one female dancer, and the two male dancers battle with swords for the affections of the female dancer in this elaborate choreography, and it looks amazing. Um how about that uh, Orthodox guy dumping that baby in the in the font? You guys show me a video of uh, oh, this baby being like to, whipped around. Yeah, so so we like, have to include bonkers. that. I don't. Is that know like that. a traditional thing, or is that just a- like one mad drunk of bishop? Georgians okay. are, are Orthodox Christians, and they think it's like it's essential to their national identity, the language, the religion, and the, and the music, and so on. Um, and what Mark's referring to is this this video that's been doing the rounds of a of a really dramatic baptism by a Georgian Orthodox priest, which involves like dipping the baby head first and then flipping it around and putting its feet in the font and flipping it around again. It's um, it's kind of alarming, to be honest. But like t- 10 yeah. times in four seconds, like yeah. he's, he, he's whipping this baby around and then and the he kind of holds it. And you're like, what's going on? I saw some yeah, comments on the video with a lot of Georgian people saying, this is a bit, this is a bit dramatic. This isn't really what baptism generally looks like. Uh, so I, I don't know. It's, it's, um, it's certainly an exciting form of, uh, of immersion. We also have a few people that we need to thank this week. First of all, to our season-long sponsors, Harry Baby. You can get 10% off anything on their site by using our special promo code 80DAYS. 
I need to thank my friend uh, Mariam Kalandarshvili for uh, giving me a bit of insight into modern Georgia through uh, our conversations. Um, it's it's nice to know someone from a place when you're researching it. So uh, thanks, Mariam. We should also thank our Kickstarter backers again. Well, um, G- Gary O'Daly actually told us about that that cosmonaut. So one of our backers, Gary O'Daly, but good good friend of the show. Oh yeah. Um, he. He uh, told us about the Russian cosmonaut and gave us a bit of information on on him. So that was a, a really helpful contribution, as well as his uh, his support of the show on Kickstarter. So thanks, Gary. Yeah, I'd also like to thank in this particular episode Jeffrey Docker, who is our most recent Kickstarter backer. Thanks very much, Jeffrey, for your support of the show. Uh, You're a really king, Jeff, it. a bloody king. So that's Georgia. If there's anything that you would like to see on the on the podcast in the future, you can get in touch with us at 80dayspodcast at gmail Please also take a moment, if you have enjoyed this episode, to rate us on iTunes. If you could just leave us a bit of feedback or just even a five-star rating, uh, that'd be amazing. You can find more episodes of 80 Days Podcast wherever you find your podcasts. You can uh, search 80 Days Podcast on Twitter or Facebook. And yeah, that's that's our show for this week. Joe, where can people find more about you on the internet? People can find me on timetoburn.com, where burn is spelled B-Y or N-E. And Mark? Uh, I'm on Twitter at, at MarkBoyle86 and I've got a, a, a blog that I do occasionally update at uh, uh, Toner of Leak. It's on WordPress. You can find me on Twitter at the Luke J. Kelly or at LukeJKelly.com. Uh, thanks very much for listening and we'll see you guys next time. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye.